0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinsch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
1: On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk public opinion and trade policy, President Biden's signing of the Taiwan Trade Bill and the long-awaited executive order on outbound investment screening. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. I hope your week is ending well.
2: Well, we'll see.
1: Kind of depends how this podcast goes. It depends how this, okay, no pressure. (laughs) We'll be the judge of that, you know? (laughs) All right, you guys will give me a report after this recording is over.
2: I'm still recovering from some awful disease, but I'll be okay.
1: Yes, I'm sorry about that, Bill. And I think on this one, it's not actually affecting your voice, but pretty much everything else. So hopefully we'll make it through. Good. So let's start with public opinion and trade policy. There's been new public opinion polls that have been coming out, most recently conducted by Gallup. And they've given us some insight into how the American public is thinking about policy issues. There are several topics examined in these polls, from education to government power. Uh, they show that voters are highly polarized in a number of prominent U.S. issues. Of course, a data point that's really interesting to us, for the purposes of the trade guys at least, is the public's opinion about trade. So guys, can you break down how Americans are thinking about trade, at least according to these polls, and how that may impact how the United States conducts its trade policy.
2: Well, the Gallup analysis is different from most because they looked at partisan gaps, the difference between Republican and Democratic views on a range of issues, and they did it in in 10-year cycles. So the new data is 2003, 2013, and uh, 2023. And what it shows uh, across the board is there's Big gaps on obvious things like gun control, universal health care, global warming. There's a gap on trade as well, but it's a smaller gap than some of the others. And it went through, I think, more of an evolution than some of the other issues. Although looking only at 10 year earmarks obscures some things that have happened in the intervening periods. So in '03, the proposition that was put is trade provides economic opportunity. Trade is a good thing, is the point. And in 2003, about 50% of Republicans and about 50% of Democrats answered that question. Yes, slightly more Republicans than Democrats. In 2013, it was about the same, except slightly more Democrats than Republicans. There was a beginning of a small decline. But 2023 was different. Democratic support for trade had gone up to 74%, and Republican uh, support for trade had declined slightly to 49%. That 49%, however, hides a considerable change that occurred between 2015 and 2023. If you look at annual data, and Pew Research Center has asked essentially the same question for years, what that shows is a fairly sharp decline in Republican support portrayed starting with 2015, basically starting with the arrival of Donald Trump on the political scene. And it continued to go down in 2015, 2016, 2017 and into 2018. And then it began to go back up. So during the early part of the Trump administration, it was less than 49 percent, about substantially less. And now it's recovering, but it has not recovered to the same extent that the Democratic trend has been. And the Democratic trend has been pretty consistently positive. I mean, the trajectory has been, you know, slow increase in support straight through. So people may find it ironic that there's more support for trade amongst and there's for Republicans. And we could comment on that, but let me turn it over to Scott first. Bill's right. This has been a puzzling and politically challenging
0: trend in that for a number of years now, really since the, you know, call it 30 years, roughly speaking, almost all the votes on trade agreements come from Republicans. They're, the Republican members of the House of Representatives and the Senate have been in general more pro-trade than, than Democratic members of the House and Senate over that 25- or 30-year period, and both of those parties seem to be out of alignment with their base. So your elected officials are supportive of trade, but the Republican voters are more skeptical. Democrats, partly because they're younger and more live, live more in the cities, trade is coming up in the ratings and more positively rated, yet Democratic members of Congress are skeptical themselves. Now, one thing that hasn't changed over that 30-year period is that jobs in the economy is almost always the top issue. And so, you know, Bill Clinton's uh, presidential campaign in 1992 had, had a, a message guy named James Carville, the famous raging Cajun, and James Carville had a bumper sticker, it's the economy, stupid. And 31 years later, it's still the economy, stupid. So uh, I, I, I think that's, that's worth hanging your hat on. There will be some switches that will make life easy or difficult, depending on how closely voters are aligned with their representatives. But that's the situation now.
2: The last point I think Scott made is is very important. In both parties, there's a disconnect. As he pointed out, the Democratic politicians are less pro-trade than their voters. Republican politicians are the reverse. I think a good bit of that has to do with where each party's financial and organizational support comes from. Republican support comes from the business community, which is historically been pro-trade. Democratic support historically comes from organized labor, which has historically been trade-skeptical. There's also the 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 Democratic left wing, which has been particularly trade-skeptical, which I think is more an ideological than organizational thing. But the important point is the one that Scott made at the end of his comments, which is that if you ask people what their opinion is about trade, you get that, and, and we just discussed that. But then if you ask them what's important, uh, you get a different answer. And Pew has been asking that question for more than 20 years. And the big three for 20 years have been the economy, healthcare, and terrorism. And they kind of take turns. Right now, it's the economy. In 01, 02, 03, 04, it was terrorism. In early Obama, it was healthcare. So they take turns, but they're always the same top three. Trade is now 18 out of 21. One notch, I think, down below climate change, which has gone up. So people have views about trade, but basically when they vote, They think about other things. And what that means in political terms is that their elected official can be out of sync with them on trade and not pay any penalty. Because when they vote, they're going to be looking at what are his or her views on the economy, on health care, on any of the other issues that are going on in, in their minds at the moment. And trade is pretty far down the list. So I think that's one reason why this disconnect has continued for as long as it has. The politicians don't pay a price for being out of step on trade. And so they just continue doing and saying what they want.
1: So do you think there's any way in which this data is going to shed light on how lawmakers are in Congress are going to think about trade? Or are we going to see that discontinuity more in the future? Lawmakers won't be punished uh, or rewarded for the way they they conduct policy on trade.
0: Well, a couple of thoughts. One is voters... And all all human beings have cognitive dissonance. We hold two beliefs that are often contradictory at the same time. So that's not uncommon at all. You see it, and you see it in, in polling quite consistently. The second thing is, I think that the pro engagement, the pro international engagement, pro trade community has categorically failed in convincing voters that trade is a positive on net and we've really failed spectacularly because there's no question from the economic data that open economies grow faster and and are more stable they have all kinds of benefits for voters consumers they raise living standards demonstrably they're good for the poor as David Dollar when he was at the World Bank pointed out consistently the, the vast reduction in poverty we've seen over the past 25 years mostly has come from greater international commerce and so there's no question that it's good and we have never sold it On the other hand, there's no question technology destroys jobs and everybody loves technology. So you tell me (laughs) we got to do a better job.
2: I keep waiting for the Democrats to realize the extent of support for trade in their own party. And, you know, basically they're listening to their left wing. And I think very clearly the Biden administration has been listening to its left wing. We've had this discussion in the past. They don't want to do trade agreements. And I think it's because they don't want to. They want to avoid a fight with the the progressive part of their party. But the reality is, you know, if you've got 74% of your voters thinking trade is a good thing, you probably can take bolder pro-trade steps without suffering at the polls. Those people are less noisy, but I wait for that. But I wait for it fruitlessly. On the Republican side, I think you're going to see something different, which is that I see, at least in the House, which now controls the process in the House, probably regroups that make the equation a little more complicated. There's the Trump followers who are going to take his line on trade, which is a skeptical, you know, the United States is a victim of evil foreigners story. But there are other groups. If you look at Adrian Smith, for example, who's the chair of the trade subcommittee, represents geographically most of Nebraska, which means a lot of farms, a lot of farmers. He thinks trade agreements are a good thing. Pro-trade, And, of course, his constituency would benefit from it significantly. So I think he's going to be pursuing more activity on on trade agreements, pressing the administration harder, uh, because he thinks it's good policy. I think there are others in the Republican Party that think dinging the Biden administration for failing to do that is good politics. Because you can talk about—this goes back to Scott's point—you could talk about missed opportunities. You know, exports that we are not trying to get, deals that we are not cutting— Market share that we are ceding to other countries and saying, you know, where are they? Where is the administration? That's politics. But if you add those two groups together, I think you're going to see more movement in the Congress, particularly, I think, next year, as we head into the, deeply into the election cycle, to make something about trade more of an issue in a way that's uh, critical of the administration. Now, having said that, I don't think any of that gets across the finish line because the reality, particularly of trade legislation, is you don't get anywhere unless the administration is actively supporting it, and it doesn't look like they're going to. But it's going to be back on the front page in kind of in a constructive way. And then, of course, later next year, if Trump ends up being the nominee, you can be sure it's going to be back on the front page in a not constructive way because he'll run on it.
1: Speaking of congressional involvement, in trade. President Biden just signed the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade Implementation Act. The bill was signed, but interestingly enough, a note was added by the White House regarding potential constitutional issues, according to them, with Section 7 of the bill. So, Bill and Scott, can you explain the White House's misgivings encapsulated in President Biden's statements about the Taiwan bill?
2: Yeah, this has a long history. It started, uh, I mean, presidential signing statements, actually, that are not anodyne, developed, I think, in the George W. Bush administration initially. I don't think Clinton did any. And Obama did it, Trump did it, and now Biden is doing it. And what happens is the president signs the bill, probably because he knows that a veto would be overridden. This particular bill passed without objection in the Senate, and I think with, what, six no votes in the House, some overwhelming uh, thing in the House. So they know they don't have a chance at, at a veto. So they... Sign it, but they issue a statement saying elements of this bill are unconstitutional and I'm going to ignore them. And that's what Biden did with this bill. I think the statement, as usual, was drafted by the White House lawyers, not by USTR. And White House lawyers, I had Justice Department lawyers, I is my understanding, were involved, regard themselves as the guardian of executive branch prerogatives. And they're eager to slap down the Congress every time they think the Congress is intruding. There were statements from members of Congress disagreeing with the president's uh, signing statement. USTR, as I think, has said, not for quotation, but has apparently been telling people that they think they can comply with the requirements in the act. So, you know, the constitutional gauntlet has been laid down. In the past, these things have tended to fade away. The president makes a statement, says, I'm going to ignore it. And then Congress says, you can't. And then nothing really happens. The president does some things that are in in compliance and maybe some things that don't and that are not, and and nobody complains. In this particular case, though, there will be consequences, I think. Some of the the provisions in the bill pretty clearly cross the constitutional line. One of them uh, allows just two members of the Congress, chairman and ranking member of the committee, to extend the statutory time period for congressional review of a negotiating proposal up to 15 days. There was an old Supreme Court decision, INS v. Achata, which dealt with uh, the one-house veto, which basically laid out the rules for how Congress can interact with the executive and what the rules said. Congress, Congress as a whole, that means both houses can send the president something, but one house cannot contradict presidential action. And even more so, two people on a single committee can't contradict presidential action. So that one, I think the president has a good grip on I also consulted with a negotiator, a long-time veteran negotiator, about these things. and said, is any of this really different, you know, from what you've been doing? And the two things that stuck out were, first, the requirement that the government share the other country's proposals with Congress, which USGR has historically not done out of deference to the other country. You know, in this case, it's Taiwan's proposal. If Taiwan wants to make it public, that's Taiwan's business. If they want to give it to the Congress, they can do that. USTR has not felt that they have a right to share other people's proposals with essentially third parties. This would make them do that. The other problem is a practical one. It says you can't share a U.S. proposal until Congress has reviewed it, and that it gives them two days to review it, and that's where this other provision comes in, where the two of the committee members could insist on more time. That's fine if you're having one negotiating session a month, but everybody knows when you enter into trade negotiations, there's an end game. And the end game is always the last 48 or 72 hours where the parties get together under some sort of self-imposed deadline and try to finish. And at that point, offers go back and forth hourly, several times a day. If you had to stop and not respond to the other side's offer for two days every single time, you really make it impossible to conclude the negotiation. So there's a very practical consequence of, of doing this. My guess is that what will happen is on that one, the administration will not comply and Congress will not complain because they understand the consequences. If they insist on the specific exact language of the, of the law, they'll derail the negotiation. You know, look, this seems to me to be a missed opportunity. Uh,
0: partly our system in many aspects is a system of dispersed power. I mean, that's really what the Constitution establishes. Power gets spread around. Nobody controls all of anything, no branch of government, no individual. And that's the way they intended it. They were trying to preserve liberty and avoided the emergence of a tyrant again that they'd just overthrown. And so when it comes to trade, we're dealing here with enumerated powers. And Article one says pretty clearly that Congress has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, and the president has the power to make treaties with advice and consent of the Senate. So that is the dispersion of power that must be remedied by a set of rules or an agreement that somehow allows for power sharing. We used to call this fast track and then Trade Promotion Authority. But the missed opportunity is, we've done TPA in 2002 and 2015, both very, very difficult, painful processes for both Congress and the executive. The 2002 TPA was used pretty effectively by the George W. Bush administration, but the 2015 TPA, which was enacted when President Obama was was in office, was used only for USMACA. It was only for the renegotiation of NAFTA, and then, then the authority expired. So there's diminishing political returns on a general grant of negotiating authority, which was what those two TPAs, 2002 and 20, 2015 were what you had in the case of Taiwan because everybody wanted to see it go forward all the members of the House and Senate the president everybody involved wants this deal and you had the opportunity to work out a power sharing agreement that met everyone's needs and interests that would be a model for future trade agreements and it looks like we missed so you know we got into signing statements and we're everybody's bickering about executive agreements which i think are if I were a foreign government, I would not want an executive agreement because it's too conditional. It's too temporary. It doesn't have the, doesn't have the endurance of a treaty or a, something that's, that's the, in statute. So I don't know what they're going to do. Bill's got a handle on, I think, by the, end of the, by the end of the game, they will have ignored the bill text in order to get something done, which is okay. But it's still, for me, a missed opportunity.
2: The one thing you can be sure of is there will be more bills. We spent a lot of time at CSIS thinking about when should an agreement be submitted and when does it not have to be submitted, which is a, a core argument here. And the House in its own inanimal fashion decided to finesse that and just say, all right, with respect to Taiwan, you have to submit the agreement. We're not gonna get into definitional issues. we will just say that one comes up. I would expect a, an IPEF bill, I would expect critical minerals agreements bills. Wouldn't be surprised to see a US UK bill. I think the Taiwan bill, admittedly, was written very quickly as an exercising congressional frustration. So I do think the signing statement will be taken seriously in some respects, and I think that the future bills uh, will probably be a little bit different than the Taiwan one in, in the details of Section 7. But the basic point, which is Congress asserting its authority, that if you're going to do a trade deal, you can't just say it's an executive agreement. If you're going to do a trade agreement, uh, a trade deal, you have to submit it to us. That's going to prevail, I think. And you're going to see, uh, you're going to see more of that. And I think from a constitutional perspective, uh, that's probably a healthy thing.
1: So riding the wave of our conversation on executive powers, we now have a long-awaited executive order on outbound investment screening. And this has been in the works for several months now. And uh, I know more than one person in the CSIS building alone who had a draft of a commentary ready for weeks on end at this point. So now it's out. President Biden signed it on the 9th, and it seems every trade person in Washington is talking about it. So, of course, the trade guys have to say something. So, Bill and Scott, let's start with an overview of this outbound investment, EO. What industries and countries of concern uh, does the EO affect?
0: Well, it's a fairly narrow list. Uh, It covers principally China and the couple of high technology sectors. And interestingly, mostly seems it, seemed to concern itself with private equity investors. And uh, so it, it is one of these things that as I read through it and read through the specifics of the bill, just, just stepping away, I was like, "Was the name of the Peggy Lee song? Is that all there is? It was, it was one of these things. This seemed like an awful lot of, of strum and drang for not much coverage of what might also be already be covered by... Uh, export controls. Here's why I say that, is that overall United States investment in the People's Republic of China is at a 20-year low, right? Total U.S. investment in the most recent year on that we have numbers for flows were $8.2 billion. Now, usually flows of, of, of foreign direct investment are measured in the trillions. The $8.2 billion is a small number. The total venture capital flows of that would be about a quarter, so it's one point three billion. So these are relatively small numbers, and that's and that's the total U.S. character investment for direct investment into China. You'd, you'd restrict it again by looking at the semiconductors and artificial intelligence and the specific industries and and uh, sectors that they intend to to scrutinize. So I'm like, what are we doing here? Why do we care so much? And isn't this this sort of this kind of rounding error in the world of foreign direct investment that would incentivize these venture capitalists and private equity firms to just have an na- operate under a, a nationality other than the United States and move on. You know, I think most a lot of semiconductor investment, for obvious reasons, in the People's Republic of China comes from Taiwan. This is a small player overall. U.S. investment in China is has been declining. It's at a relatively low. Now it's a lot of reasons to think it won't turn around because of uh, the workforce is shrinking in China. The most investments that, that were of interest to US firms have already been made. So I'm not sure what we're doing. Bill, I
2: know you're a lot closer, but I'm like, why? First of all, for those of you that uh, the wonks that want to get into it, every law firm in town is doing a piece on this. So there's plenty to, of research material available. Our colleagues, uh, Emily Benson and Greg Allen, have written a commentary, which is already out and published. You can see it on the CSIS website that goes into some detail about this. For those of you that really want to get into it, the executive order is not the thing to read. The thing to read is the advance notice of proposed rulemaking, the ANPRM, which is much, much longer, but lays out in considerable detail uh, how Treasury intends to implement this proposal, which is bifurcated. Some transactions will be prohibited relatively small number, and a larger number will be notified. There's really only one country of concern. I mean, the list is China, Hong Kong, and Macau. But thanks to what China, what she's and Duping has done, Hong Kong and Macau really are increasingly folded into China. So there's one country uh, of concern. The selected sectors are semiconductors, uh, and associated microelectronics, supercomputers, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence. The interesting thing about this uh, and the interesting thing about Senate legislation that passed as part of the defense bill a few weeks ago is that neither of them on their face provide authority to expand that list. So the executive order says this is the list, and it gives the Treasury Secretary a lot of authority to flesh out a lot of details, which the NPRM does, but it doesn't give her authority to add biotechnology or to add other things. Now, they could do that. They just issued another executive order. But it is designed to be narrow and, in in a sense, is more focused than I thought. Because I was expecting a catch-all provision. that just says, you know, the secretary could get can add anything else that she thinks would affect our security. That's not there. The details, if you dig into the details, the semiconductor prohibition requirements pretty much track the semiconductor export control rules of last October, the control parameters are are pretty much the same. And I think the people in that industry are not going to find an awful lot that's different. Quantum is more far reaching because investment in most quantum technologies is, is simply being prohibited. The AI section is a lot more complicated and people should read the ANPRM to see the details. The government seems to want to take more of an end user approach uh, and not prohibit investment in any and all AI, but to focus in on artificial intelligence that has military applications is for military use or for use like mass surveillance or monitoring without consent, of, without informed consent of other parties, which have, would, would affect various kinds of software and uh, facial recognition technologies and things like that. So it, it, it doesn't contain the words human rights, but human rights are kind of embedded in there. I think Scott is, uh, is right. They're really looking, I think, more at venture capital uh, investors. I listened to a, a seminar this morning or a webinar this morning on, on this subject, and one of the speakers thought that he really was more aimed at potentially you know larger investors thinking about building in China or constructing manufacturing capabilities in China. I don't think that's, I don't agree with that. I think it's really aimed at startups uh, because what they're trying to do is is make sure that China doesn't build up and acquire uh, new capabilities that they don't already have. I'm not a defender of the provision. As listeners know, I've been a skeptic a skeptic of this from the beginning. But uh, over time, the, the reasoning has changed, and I think it's worth saying a word about the reasoning. It started out being about the money, and a lot of people have pointed out, as Scott has pointed out, that it's not really about the money. First of all, our money is way down, and Second of all, the Chinese are not short of money. So the new debate is that it's about the know how. That particularly when a venture capital firm invests in a startup, they take on a proprietary interest, basically, in making sure that startup succeeds. And enabling it to succeed often means transferring know how, which the administration believes is not quite the same as technology that is subject to export controls. That know how is how to run a business. You know, how to operate the machinery, how to put the various pieces together into a viable enterprise that is both cutting edge and profitable. I'm not sure I totally buy that, but the rationale is that's the rationale. And that's why they're focusing on equity investors that have a stake in trying to make sure the enterprise succeeds and not primarily simply on American companies that want to build a greenfield plant in China. That's covered. You know, I I don't, that's not exempt. It's covered, but I I don't think that's the focus. They also take some pains and some detail, which we don't have time to go into here, to exclude a variety of passive investments. So index funds, mutual funds, publicly traded stocks probably are not going to end up in the final rule. Academic research, funding academic research is probably not going to end up in the final rule. But as you get into it, and this is why the ANPRM is so interesting, There are just a bazillion very specific, detailed questions that they attempt to answer now, and and they ask for comment on forty-five day comment period. For example, can you can an American company, for example, invest in a benign Indian company, which then goes on to reinvest in a prohibited Chinese entity? I think the answer to that will be no. But you know, this kind of third party thing has to be dealt with. Can a bank? Process a payment to a Chinese entity that is to whom to which investment is prohibited. Uh, it's not clear what the answer to that is going to be. There's just a whole host of very specific questions. My guess is that a lot more of the comments are going to come from financial sector people than are going to come from the technology sector because it really is about defining what transactions are permissible, and what transactions are not permissible. The technology cut. In the notice is a lot clearer than the finance cut.
1: So the bottom line is that this EO is more bare bones than we necessarily expected. So watch the rulemaking. I think is that the bottom line
0: is watch that what happens during the rulemaking, and because uh, it's the, it's the comments are public, and the and Treasury will need to in, respond to the comments.
2: And this is a slow-moving train. Whether it's a slow-moving train wreck or a slow-moving train, remains to be seen. But there's a 45-day comment period. They're not expecting to rule out the regulations till next year. Uh, This is not retroactive. So you may see a flurry of transactions over the next four or five months as people try to get in under some imaginary wire. This is going to take a while. I was tempted to write about it in my weekly column, and I decided, let's let the dust settle, and let's let the experts go through the notice and poke all the holes in it. So we'll probably come back to this topic in a few weeks when people have had a chance to review it and, and, and assess it. I think the, the early assessment is that it is what the administration said it would be. It is more modest and more targeted than people were worried about. One Republican congressman, Congressman McHenry of the House Financial Services Committee, who's been a skeptic about this all along, welcomed it because it was modest. Other uh, uh, House members, the China Hawks in particular, were critical basically saying too little, too late, too modest, so, which you knew was coming. I mean, this, that was uh, you could predict that with absolute certainty. Even some of the Democrats, who didn't criticize the proposal, uh, took the tone of, well, it's a good start, and we in Congress need to legislate further. My expectation is, and the administration alluded to this in one of its comments, is that they, are, they will take steps to try to persuade the Congress to conform the provision in the defense bill to the executive order so that everything lines up and that what the Congress ultimately sends to the president in legislation will be pretty much the same as what the president has already announced. Now, the Congress may not go along with that, but I think that will be the administration's intention to get these things as close together as possible. So my advice to people that are thinking about investing or don't follow this closely is read the ANPRM because that gives you an awful lot of clues about how this will roll out it's phrased in the form of questions. You know, should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? What else should we be thinking about? But when you work your way through it, you'll realize uh, the Treasury's already answered most of the questions. And I think they're open to people coming in and saying, you got the wrong answer. But my guess is that 80 to 90 percent of what's in that ANPRM is going to be the way this comes out in the final regulation.
1: I was thinking of rereading the Harry Potter series this weekend, but I have something more entertaining on my hands now. This will be shorter than that. Yes, Harry Potter and the
0: Executive Order. That's the new volume with a grown-up Harry Potter who who becomes a government relations director in Washington D.C.
2: One thing you can be sure about that is that most of the technologies that are featured in the Harry Potter books are going to be banned as far as investment is concerned.
1: I see no magic wands going to China anymore. That's good to know.
2: No magic wands, no levitation. Transposition, none of that stuff. We're going to keep all that for ourselves.
1: Good. Or in the UK, as the case may be. We'll we'll tell J.K. Rowling. Well, Trade Guys, I'll see you all next week. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You bet.
0: To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.